As you heard, in case you missed it, there is a Super Bowl today. And I'm excited about this afternoon, but I've got to tell you it's not so much about the game. It's about having people into each other's homes. We have four homes that are set up, and even if you don't watch a second of the game, come and just be a family together. Be Love each other and be a community, and I'm excited about that. But would it change anything for you if I could tell you the outcome of the game? No? Okay. Any football fans would have changed anything for you? <laughs> Nothing? Okay, so, so if I, so yes, so if I could say the Patriots are going to win by three touchdowns. We have Giants fans here? <laughs> if you're a Giants fan, what does that do to you watching the game? It, it, let's, let's pretend I was accurate, and I'm not. Please don't stone me later when it's not true. If I was accurate, if you're a Giants fan, would that change anything? Would you love to watch the game still? Okay, so even if you knew the outcome, because knowing the outcome is troubling. Now, if you're a Patriots fan, you, some people might be all, already excited. Any Patriots fans here? I know most of the people are like, those teams are both over there. So it really doesn't matter. Um, it, knowing what's going to happen can really affect how we live now. If you're watching the game, and I've used this example before, but if you're watching the game and you know for certainty that the Patriots are going to win, and they're down by four touchdowns in the third quarter, you're going to watch the rest of the game, not because you're afraid, but because you're excited to see how this is going to work out. You're excited to see what God is doing. This morning, we come to Mark chapter 13, and it's a a really fascinating chapter It's a chapter where Jesus begins to talk about the end of time and talk about things in the future. And it's a difficult chapter because there are so many different interpretations of what this could mean. Is it talking about when Jesus will return? We have people that in the news have predicted when Jesus will return. I think we had two or three predictions last year that Jesus was going to come back at certain times. And last I checked, we're still here. February 5th, 2012. And, and we try to make predictions. And the question to start with this morning is, why, do we, why are we so concerned about when Jesus is going to come back? Why do we try to make that prediction? Why are we so fascinated by that? Any ideas? We want to be ready. We want to be ready? Okay. We know the end. You what? We know the end. We know the end. So this is a good thing. We want to be prepared, or we want to do all the stuff we want to do and fit it in. Knowledge is control. control. (laughs) Thank you for honesty. (laughs) There's some of that, isn't there? And so Jesus in this chapter sits down and he's going to talk about the end. And I'll just tell you up front, I am not going to tell you when Jesus is coming back. It's not going to happen. If that's why you're here this morning, then, then wait for a couple weeks when we move on. But the chapter's there and we're going to talk about it. Because Jesus knew what was coming. 
And Jesus knew what his disciples were about to face. Now that, that we have the advantage of 2,000 years later looking at history, we know what they were going to face. And they were going to face some terrible times and some terrible deaths. And Jesus knows that at the end of time, when Satan ramps up his attacks, we're going to face those same things. And so he shares what is needed to be shared, simply to comfort and to encourage and to exhort. Not to satisfy curiosity, but to to provide what is needed for us to have hope. For us to have a glimpse of God's mighty hand For us to have a glimpse that His plan is being worked out to perfection and nothing will stop it. So when we look around and we're like, I don't even know if I can do tomorrow, we know that God has it taken care of. Turn with me to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. And in your notes, I I labeled the first four verses the hook. It's It's... How Jesus gets the disciples into the discussion. And he uses one of their questions to, to introduce this idea of what's going to happen. In Mark chapter 13, verse 1. And the hook that Jesus uses in your notes there is don't take pride in the temple. It's gonna be gone. It's going away soon. Mark chapter 13, verse 1 through 4. Let's read those verses. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And in the first two verses, he takes a question from the disciples and he turns the discussion to where he wants it to go. Remember, this is probably Tuesday of Passion Week, just before the crucifixion. And Jesus has been teaching in the temple all day and fielding these questions, answering them masterfully, bringing people back to the kingdom. And now it's evening and they're on their way out. And they're leaving. And and the disciples, one of them, and we don't know who, looks around and says, Wow! The temple's incredible, Jesus! Isn't this amazing? And, and for us to really understand what's going on here, we, we need to understand that the temple was one of the, the architectural wonders of the Roman world. This was not just a little sanctuary this size. In fact, the highest wall was about 165 feet. Get an idea of how much that is? Don, is this sanctuary about 30 feet? 28 feet. That's over five times as high as this sanctuary was the highest wall. Pretty amazing. It was one-sixth of the size of the entire city of Jerusalem. So this was a large, it was twice as large as Solomon's temple. Um, Herod had built it. He actually was still building it. It took him 45 to 50 years to this point that he was building it. Josephus, one of the historians of the time, writes about the temple. And I just wanted to read what he wrote. Now the outward face of the temple in its front wanted nothing that was likely to surprise either men's minds or their eyes. For it was covered all over the plates of gold of great weight. And at the first rising of the sun, reflected back a a very fiery splendor and made those who forced themselves to look upon it turn their eyes away just as they would have done at the sun's own rays. It's a lot of gold. So every, every face that could be covered was either gold or with white limestone. But this temple appeared to strangers when they were at a distance like a mountain covered with snow. 
For as to those parts of it that were not gilt, they were exceedingly white. On its top, it had spikes with sharp points to prevent any pollution of it by birds sitting upon it. It was a concern back then too. Of its stones, some of them were 45 cubits in length. It's about 60 feet long. Five in height and six in breadth. These stones that were at the foundation were like giant boxcars. This is an amazing building. Okay, this isn't wood. This isn't drywall that we could put a, a hole through. These are stones that big. This was a, a permanent, enduring structure. At least so they thought. And the disciples said, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And we see a tinge of pride. Of reveling in that. Taking stock in this and putting our, their trust in this. And in verse 2, Jesus says, And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Do you see them? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Keep in mind the size of the walls. So the highest wall, not all of them were that high. Keep in mind the size of the stones. And Jesus says, They're all going to be destroyed. It's going to be gone. It's going to be flat. It's going to be level. I can just imagine what the disciples started thinking. What? That can't happen. We don't know of anyone that could even do that to the temple. And, and it started them thinking, okay, what's going to happen? Jesus knows something we don't know. There's something that's going to happen to the temple. And in their mind, if the temple goes, the world goes. And so for them, they can't separate the end of the temple from the end of time in Christ's second coming or, or the day of the Lord. And so this was all in their minds is, okay, he's talking about the end of the world. So let's find out what this is about. Let's find out what this is about. Interestingly enough, in AD 70, this happened. Just 40 years later, the temple was burnt to the ground. You might say, okay, you said they were stones. I've had a fire pit. I know there's things that don't burn in a stone. But what's interesting is the limestone that they used, actually, if you got it hot enough, it would turn into powder. And in, in some of the, the archaeological discoveries, they have found burnt arches because they, they would pile the, the um, wood and things and get the fire so hot that the arch would burn and then crumble and the wall behind it would have the shape of the arch in the, that had been burnt. And then after they burned it, under Roman, the Roman general Titus, they came in and leveled it. Literally so level that they can't even to this day figure out the exact locations of some of the buildings. Stone upon stone was no longer. Jesus' prophecy came true. We know that. They don't know that yet from their perspective. But we know that and it gives credibility to what He's saying. He, he is God. And he knows. And not one stone was left upon the other. Just a couple of quick points even from these first two verses. I think I put bullet points in your notes. It's a great reminder that the church is not a building. The church is not a building. Worship is not tied to a building. If this sanctuary burned down tonight, we could still have church next week. Because we could still gather as the family of God. We could still gather as believers. If we had no instrument, we still have our voices. 
And we could gather and sing praise to our God. The church is not the building. The church is not required to worship God. The church is when we come together and give glory to God with our lives and with our voices. That's the church. We need to remember that as we we come together on Sundays. This is a, a convenient way to do that. It's a convenient location, but it's about our relationships. It's about our brothers and sisters in Christ coming together. It's about worshiping a holy God, not a grand place. So then Jesus goes, goes on and, and, and they walk out of, of the, the temple and they, they go to the Mount of Olives, which we know was about a mile, mile and a half away. And they sit on the Mount of Olives in a place where they could overlook the temple. And Don, if we could go to the second slide of mine, not the first one. Next one. It might have looked something like this. Now, now this, is to, this is modern day from the Mount of Olives looking back at the Temple Mount. And so where that gold dome is, you would have to picture grand buildings and, and the temple there. And Andrew was saying it would be great if we could overlay a model or something on that. And we, haven't, we don't have a picture like that, but it would be really cool if we could. My laser pointer is coming, coming down to me. And so Jesus and the disciples are probably sitting, looking back at the city here, and this whole area would have been the Temple Mount that had this grand building on it. And so they go in verse 3, and, he, and as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? See, they heard what he said about the temple. And they're waiting, and as they often do, they get to a private time, and they're like, okay, Jesus, what's going on? Tell me what you mean by this. This is confusing. And that's the setup for the Olivet Discourse, the rest of the chapter. As Jesus begins to answer these questions, not so much when these things will be, but the signs of when this will be accomplished. Now, to understand where we go from here, I just want to take a few minutes today and talk about prophecy. Because prophecy is a tricky thing. If I say, in the future, I'm going to go to Taco Bell, when am I going to Taco Bell? What, what do you know from that statement? Sometime after now. Okay, if I say, I'm going to Taco Bell and I'm going to Del Taco, what do you know? I'm really hungry. <laughs> you might think he's going both places. He's really hungry. What else might you think? <laughs> that gets to more the point of where Jesus is going to go with this. Not that he likes tacos, but seeing the, the connect, connecting the dots. Very good. Where am I going first? Did I say where I was going first? No, I said two places I was going. If you put them in words, you have to have one before the other. It doesn't mean I'm going one place before the other, right? Am I going there the same day? <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Doesn't say. Do you see some of the difficulties of prophecy? Now, now again, I'm not a prophet. Don't stone me if I don't go to Taco Bell and Del Taco today. But Don, if you could put back up that first picture... 
That one. This is a view uh, that will help us understand how to look at prophecy in the Bible. So today's just sort of some good information. Um, this is actually taken from, anyone know where this is taken from? Say, Jim, do you know where this is taken from? Anaheim Hills. Okay, and it's looking across the valley to the first row of hills across your Belinda area. There we go. Up into Mount Baldy, which is one of these. I'm not sure which one. Maybe that one. Um, and so it's looking at the hills in Mount Baldy. And there's a couple of principles that this illustrates about prophecy that I think I put in your notes. The first is called foreshortening. Foreshortening. Maybe a word you don't use every day. And it's talking about the perspective of time in prophecy. That when we're looking forward, when, when a prophet, and this applies to Old Testament prophecy, New Testament prophecy, the book of Revelation, when we look forward, we don't always know which things come in which order or the space in between, which is the foreshortening is when I look forward, it shortens the space in between. Between this hill, hillside and this mountain range, now we know the area, what, what is there between there? San Gabriel Valley. A valley, you know, 20, 30 miles wide. From the picture, could you tell that? Now, now maybe you could get into, well, the mountains are a little blurrier, and so if it was a crystal clear picture, you couldn't tell that. Did you notice what else is, is bef- between the hills and the mountain? There's shadows, but there's actually looks to me like a couple of other little hills right before those mountains. Hard to tell because it all blends in together. When we look forward at prophecy, we have this hills and mountains perspective where sometimes the prophecy may be about a hill here, still in the future. Sometimes the prophecy may be about the mountain further in the future. Maybe the, maybe the next part of the prophecy is back here. It's all looking forward. And, and it's all to make a point, like I like tacos. But that point isn't to give us an exact timeline of what will happen. Quite frankly, I think if we had an exact timeline of, of what would happen, we would abuse it. We would, number one, I think we would be tempted to live like the devil until we knew the time was, was coming. But then we would abuse the knowledge of that. Jesus says, trust me. Trust me. But I'll tell you enough of what you need. In the Old Testament, we have prophecies of, of the Messiah. And in the same prophecy, it might talk about Him suffering and Him ruling. In the same prophecy, the suffering is the hill. The first coming of Christ. That Jesus we know, and He died on the cross. The ruling is His second coming when we will be with Him in eternity. Same prophecy, but, but prophetic foreshortening. The other, the other thing to remember when we look at prophecy is that of double fulfillment. There are times when one prophecy, actually many times in Scripture, or double fulfillment or partial fulfillment. Um, two slightly different things, but I, I have them in the same category. The idea is that one prophecy might be fulfilled at a, a near time, partially, or in one way, but it's still coming to be fully fulfilled at a later time. We see this with the examples of types in the Old Testament where you have the kingdom of David, which is a foreshadowing of the kingdom of the Messiah. 
The prophecies looking forward to that were not fully fulfilled with David. They are fully fulfilled with Jesus Christ. Okay, so far so good? With me on Prophecy 101? We, we could spend a long time on this, but those are the two things that I think apply to the passage that we're studying this week and next. Um, we're not doing all of chapter 13 today, so you're okay. The other thing, just by way of, of before we get into the rest of the verses, there are three ways that people interpret Mark 13. Actually, a lot more, but you can condense them to three ways. The first, because Mark 13 is talking about events that are to come. The first way says that all of the events are about the hill. They're all about the destruction of the temple in AD 70. That would be the preterist um, point of view. And so if, if you're taking that point of view, you'll read all of Mark chapter 13 and you'll apply it all to AD 70, the destruction of the temple. Then there are others that say it's all about the mountains. It's all about the kingdom of God. It's all about when Jesus returns and sets up his heavenly kingdom. That's the futurist point of view. And so they'll read Mark 13 very different than the other people. The third one, sort of the catch-all, it's the preterist-futurist point of view, (laughs) that says some of the statements there are about the hill, some of the statements are about the mountains. And we have to trust that Jesus knows the difference. And that he lets us know just what we need to know when we know it. And the, the, the reason why we come to that, and that's actually the viewpoint that I'll be taking as we, we teach through this chapter, the reason is that there are, there are statements that are clearly about the destruction of the temple, such as, I will destroy this temple. And, and, and the, the, there are descriptions where he is preparing his disciples for what is about to come. He's sitting on the mountains, what, looking at the temple mount, and, and he's preparing them for what is about to come. There are other statements in this chapter that are clearly about the end of time, things that haven't happened yet, that are still in the future for us. And so if we look at Mark 13, you and I are living in the valley. We're in between these two events. AD 70 has already happened. The end of time, Christ's return, His second coming is still coming. So all of that's just sort of technical stuff as we deal with the passage. See, the thing is, we can get bogged down into the details. And and as I studied the passage, there are some resources that take every phrase in this passage and try to tie it to historical events or coming events. But here's where I want to go with this chapter. That's not the point. It's not the point Jesus is making. The details aren't the point. The purpose is the point. Jesus isn't giving us a bunch of details about the future. Jesus knows that His death is happening in three days and He's giving a type of farewell address to His disciples. He's preparing them for what is coming. If you were leaving your house, and those of you that are parents, if you were leaving and you were leaving your kids at home for the first time and you're going away for three weeks and you know that two weeks in, you've scheduled some strange workman to come and work inside the house that might be a good thing to tell your child. Right? And that they have a key. Let's just you know, have some fun with the illustration. Otherwise, they come home and there's a stranger in the house. They might call the police. Who knows what? My parents left one time, and I think I've told this story before, and they didn't tell me. 
everything that they did, and we're working on that. And, and um, in there, I drive by their house, and as I'm driving by, the, the bathroom light goes on. They're gone. What am I to think? Right? So I pull in, I call my sister who lives across the street and get some backup, say, I'm going in. <laughs> it's my parents' house, I'm going in. And, and open the door and, and, and my heart's pounding, gotta tell you. My heart's just pounding and I'm looking around and, and my, my relatives are all outside. <laughs> Go run! <laughs> <laughs> And I go in and I'm looking around and I don't see anything and, and, and my heart's pounding because I saw that light turn on. And so I, I have something in my hand and I, I go and, and I finally go to their bathroom and I turn the corner and there's a lamp on a timer. <laughs> Would have been nice to know. <laughs> and so things that we... Jesus knows what's coming and it's, it's not as silly as a lamp but He knows the, the persecution that's coming and if he can give enough information for what the disciples need to know so they will not lose heart and they will not fear and their hearts won't be pounding as some of these devastating things happen, that's what Mark 13 is about. It's a pastoral passage where Jesus is showing a concern for his disciples. And his purpose is to encourage them in their faith, in their obedience, and in their trust in God to encourage His disciples in their faith, obedience, and trust in God during times of distress and upheaval. And I've got to say, that message is what we still need today. During times of distress and upheaval, we need to know that God is still God. And He is still sovereign. And He is working His plan so we can trust Him, so we can obey Him, and we can strengthen our faith in Him. That's how I want to look at Mark chapter 13. We'll take two weeks on it. We're not going to get very far today because I wanted to spend some time on intro. But let's look at verses 5 through 8. The first thing that Jesus lets them know, the world is falling apart and it's going to get worse. Thanks. Thanks, Jesus. The world is falling apart. It's going to get worse. Don't be swayed. Don't be swayed. Let's look at verse 5. And Jesus said to them, See that no one leads you astray. One, one other little aside. Do you see the, the phrase, See that no one leads you astray? That's a, a command. It's an imperative. It's something that Jesus is telling them to do. And throughout this passage, that is supposed to be facts about the future, that people think of it that way, there are 17 commands that all of the facts just support. So it's always, do this because this is happening. Do this because this is happening. Do you see why the point is the do this, not what's happening? And so he says, do this. Be aware. See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am He, and they will lead many astray. So Jesus knows that in times of trouble, there are often opportunities for someone to come along and say, I have the answer. I have the answer. I have hope. Believe in me. Trust in me. And we know from history there were many people that rose up in those first 50, 60 years 
that called themselves the Messiah. And they'd gather followers and they'd be killed. And none of them were the Messiah. And the same is true today. We, we see all kinds of things on the news. The David Caresses, the Jim Jones, and, and all kinds of people that are, are claiming to be God. And, and in this case, many will come in my name or in my authority, in my dignity, in my power, saying, I am He. They will lead many astray. And Jesus' first point to them is don't follow them. Be aware. Be discerning. Don't just follow any source of help when you're in trouble. Follow the source of help that you know is true. When we get in difficult times, it's easy to question God's goodness. It's easy to question His power and His love. And sometimes I've watched people start to question His goodness and His love and, and they, they walk away from the faith and they walk away from God because they're desperately searching for some other way to fill that hope. And some turn to alcohol and some turn to drugs and some turn to sex and some turn to all kinds of other things. Maybe it's other religions. And they've been led astray because none of that satisfies. And so Jesus is just telling the disciples right up front, it's going to be tough. There's going to be people that come in my name. Don't follow them. Don't follow them. He goes on in verse 7, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. And there's another command. Don't be worried. Don't be alarmed. And, and the, second, the first point is don't let anyone or anything pull you from following Christ. Letter A there. Letter B. Don't be alarmed by political unrest or natural disasters. Jesus says you're going to hear of wars, rumors of roars, wars. There are going to be political unrest. Don't be anxious about it. And catch what he says next. This must take place. Underline must or highlight must. What does that mean to you? Jesus is saying this is part of the plan. This must take place for the end of the plan. It's not a surprise. This is going to happen. Then he says, but the end is not yet. The end is not yet. Remember, they thought when, when these things happened with the temple, that was the end. We know that, that we live beyond that hill range in the valley, that it's not the end. We're, we're still looking forward to the return of Christ. Jesus is telling them that. That's not the end yet. It's coming. Don't be alarmed. In verse 8, For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. The beginning of the birth pains. When you think about birth, and several of our families have had the joy of going through that recently, when labor starts, is that the easiest time of labor or the hardest time of labor? I'm trusting ladies to know and answer me. <laughs> the beginning, it, it gets harder, doesn't it? There's a reason why they call the end hard labor. Because it, it gets harder. And, and Jesus is saying, all these things that you're worried about, these must happen, but they're just the beginning. It's going to get worse, but don't be alarmed. 
See, the thing about a birth of a child is you know the end. And the end result is little Abby, little Emma, a bundle of joy. And by using this imagery, Jesus is saying there is a glorious future ahead, but some things have to happen to get us there. It's going to hurt. It's going to be hard. But don't be alarmed. It's part of the plan. God is still in control. God is still in control. And again, the phrase, these are the beginning of the birth pains, it's a reference to this is a long process. There's a valley there. The, 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 the destruction of the temple and the coming persecution is just the start of what's going to eventually culminate in the second coming of Christ. But when I think of that section, the world is falling apart and will get worse. Don't be swayed. And the challenge to not let anything or anyone pull us from following Christ, to not be alarmed by political unrest or natural disasters, to realize that everything we see on the news God knows about, I can get myself worked up about those. Well, oh no, what's going to happen now? And God is saying, I've got it. Don't worry about it. Got it. It's part of the plan. Trust me. Trust me. We're going to do the rest of the chapter next week. We'll, we'll stop there today.